You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music. I'm your host, Brent Simmons. In the studio with me today is Jim Rowland, software test pilot at the Omni Group. Say hello, Jim. Howdy. You have to say, hello, Jim. Hello, Jim. Thank you. I should have warned you in advance, but an unbroken streak. So These are the jokes. Yes, yes, they are. They, you know, gets the audience warmed up a little bit. Anyway, so you're not at all related to the guy from Dexy's Midnight Rise. I am not. No. Fan of his work, though. Oh, sure. Come on, Eileen. It's a great song. It is a great it song. It truly is a lot of fun. If you had been related, we would have used it as the theme music for the episode. What else would you use? Yeah, right. So now I'm probably stuck with the rolling, rolling rawhide theme. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of uh, the utility infielder of the test pilots here. You, you move around a little bit, go to where the fires are hottest. I have tested just about it. Well, I have tested everything that we put out. My first product was OmniPlan, where I spent the bulk of my first two years here. Okay. Then I got shifted to Graffle for a while for the Graffle 7 release. Mm-hmm. And then I was on Omni Outliner. Or Outliner 5 for oh, yeah. about a year. That was the last thing they let me work on. <laughs> and then I got moved to OmniFocus. All right. So you've been on every every single yeah. app. And yeah. actually did some testing on Disk Sweeper for a little while. And mm. I haven't really done anything on OmniWeb yet, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've done all the, the big ones. I've the, done all the big app, ones. For pay apps, yeah. Plus Disk Sweeper, which in terms of downloads... I have to, I mean, it's free. I just sometimes wonder if it's our most popular app without even it, realizing it. It's, Ken still puts a lot of work into it. Yeah, so. that's true. In yeah. fact, he just released a update for the beta work. Mm, it's a great app. I'll make sure a link is in the show notes. So you were on OmniPlan for a while and at first, and I'm curious about that app because it's different from our other apps. It's like them, it's a productivity app, but it's also very much for a specific audience products and program managers. It's the most specialized thing I think we mm-hmm. produce. It has its own vocabulary mm. and it has a specific set of functions that only people who are trying to plan something would use. Mm. Now, is this an industry vocabulary or specific to the app? I would say it's an industry vocabulary mm-hmm. that's, that's translated in the Omni way to an app that we think gets the widest audience mm-hmm. for that specific use. But not everyone is a program manager and the vocabulary is pretty specific. Mm. So education is a part of the OmniPlan experience for you, for us. Uh, I think for both ends. I think mm. we get educated by our customers right. because while we, we have a pretty extensive use case library, there's always somebody who's coming up with a new way or a new use mm-hmm. for OmniPlan and in a new environment. And so I think we, we learn every time we, we answer a support ticket or, or add a feature or plan a feature, we take all of that input into what comes next. Mm. So it's interesting that a lot of PMs are self-taught. Especially in the tech industry. Mm. I think a lot of people start in development or in product design. Mm. And then as they, in larger organizations, as they become more senior, they end up in program management because that's the the next kind of logical step for them. Sure. And, you know, without formal training, you know, they're, they're trying to absorb and create all this vocabulary and learn it all on their own. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and uh, that can be a, a big challenge. Mm-hmm. And so I think our the main goal of is OmniPlan is to is to take that vocabulary and and make it as approachable as possible, right? So people can and get something they can use out of it. So like like many apps, it's essentially two things: so the under the hood, and then the user interface. And so under the hood, I'm imagining it's just a whole lot of math. It is so much math. (laughs) Greg does a a great job parsing the equations from the theory into Mm. into something that OmniPlan can put into practice. Okay. The model which runs under OmniPlan is is wide and Mm. and deep. Uh, It's kind of like the ocean. You know, (laughs) the the UI um, and the UX work all float on the top, right, with the waves. But the true depth of OmniPlan is below the surface. That's the challenge then is to get the user interface to make it possible to use that model without having to be Greg himself. Yes. Right. And he and Tom work together to make a very approachable product Mm -hmm. for something that is, can be pretty opaque and dense. Right. And it's great to see what people do with it. So lately you've been on OmniFocus, uh, any particular areas or just general testing? Focus. been working on it since almost since OmniFocus 3 came mm-hmm. out. I joined the team about about a month or so after okay. it came out. And then uh, lately we've been working on subscriptions mm-hmm. for the native applications. So for iOS and for Mac, mm-hmm. allowing people to access and purchase subscriptions for OmniFocus for the web. And then uh, DropTask, which has actually been really, really interesting to use. Tell me more about DropTasks. Um, well, what's it for? I like to think of drop tasks as a record of the past not taken. It's your map for the choices that you made but didn't perform. Okay. One of the great strengths of OmniFocus is the review process. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that review, you may decide, I'm not actually going to do this right. project or action. And now you have a way to capture the fact that you've looked at it, you've made a mm-hmm. conscious decision not to do it, right? Okay. and then you've recorded that when and where you've done it and said, I'm not doing this. Right. And so later, should you come up with the same idea again, Mm. you can add it back into your OmniFocus and look at your drop test and say, wait, I've thought about this already. Right. Uh, I'm not doing this. mm -hmm. Let's move forward. Right. Because your other options were leave it there, delete it, or mark it as done. And none of those things were true. You're right. And it it was, there was no other real way to capture something you've decided not to do mm-hmm. other than deleting right. it, which loses the history. Yeah. Right. Then, then you or don't know. completing yeah. it, which is false history. I suppose you could edit the title, decide not to do whatever it was, then mark it as complete. Yeah. A, <laughs> a lot of people had several workarounds. Sure. You know, they would tag things as not done or not doing or mm-hmm. do not do. And then using the tag feature and before that mm-hmm. context to do the same thing. But this is a much cleaner implementation. Yeah. It, it really creates another status for your, your projects and your actions. Right. One of the simpler uses for it, for me, is very useful. I have a lot of repeating tasks, things I do every, every morning at work. For instance, I look at Ken Case's tweets because I'm in marketing and I need to know what the CEO is saying to the world. But if it's Memorial Day or something, you know, I'm not actually going to do it. So I can just drop it for that day rather than marking it as complete or whatever. And and everything yeah. takes and, care of itself. And it'll turn on your repeating task again. You can delete it, you know, drop it for that day. Right. Or drop it forevermore. And 
you can go either route, but either yeah. way it's recorded your decision. Right. So before you were at Omni, you started off at the Naval Academy, which yeah. was your rebellion because you were, your dad was in the army. Yeah. My, so you're like, yeah, I'm going in the Navy. Screw you, pop. <laughs> no, both my parents were in the army actually. Oh, both parents, yeah. I'd, I'd seen their jobs and I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not doing this, but mm-hmm. I knew I was joining the military. And so. Um, was is that like a a family thing basically it's just, or it's something i felt like i needed to do mm-hmm. my family kind of has a strong sense of of duty okay so public service yeah. um yeah my mom's a nurse um my dad before joining the navy or before joining the army was a police officer mm. and when he left the army he was a police officer afterwards my sister's a police officer my other sister's a nurse mm. so yeah. uh, the military seemed like the was going to be my option. And 24 years later, I left. Mm -hmm. I never applied to the Naval Academy, but I do vaguely remember hearing that you had to get a congressperson to send a letter or something, just go through all that stuff. There were three pass. uh, Well, technically there's four pass. Your father or mother could have won the Medal of Honor. All right. That didn't happen in my case. Not particularly common. You can get what's called a vice presidential appointment. Okay. And that's usually for enlisted service members um, mm. with exceptional service. Okay. And then the other option is applying to your local congressman mm. or congresswoman and or senators. And they have 10 slots each mm. for each of the academies per year Okay, to dole out. Mm. And I was a high school student in Wyoming. Mm. So there were 30 slots. Right. And you're thinking... You're lucky to be in a low population state at that point. It helps. Yeah, sure. There weren't as many people applying to the Naval Academy in mm-hmm. Wyoming as in, yeah, you know, that, say yeah. Maryland or yeah, Connecticut right. or California where there's big populations and water. I grew up in Maryland and like the idea of going to the Naval Academy was almost, was essentially pushed on everybody. Like this would be the greatest thing. Well, you're right there. Yeah, right. So I applied and then uh, I interviewed with uh, Dick Cheney. Lucky I, you. Yeah. Malcolm Wallop, who was the senior senator at the time, and then uh, Alan Simpson, All right. who uh, gave me my appointment. Nobody's ever heard of Malcolm Wallop. No one, no. really, yeah. yeah. Going to be a fighter pilot? Was that the whole oh, idea? Yeah, I yeah. Uh, was a, so I was 16 when Top Gun came out. You guys can all do the math. Perfect age um, though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, for know, Top Gun. Yeah. So I, I felt the need for speed, something terrible, and <laughs> I was going to be a Top Gun pilot. Uh-huh. Yeah. Unfortunately, the Navy does not give fighter planes to people with bad sinuses. Mm. There is a thing. So my need for speed ended very quickly. Right. All right. So I ended up driving ships after the Naval Academy. Okay. Did you study engineering at the Naval Academy? Uh, I was going to be an aeronautical engineer. That went with the need for speed. Mm-hmm. Um, Actually. So I became a computer scientist. Okay. The My need, need for, for really fast computers? At, yes. <laughs> uh, ended at 16 megahertz, which was, I think, the bus speed of the computer at the time that yeah. I was using. What's driving frigates like? They're kind of like sports cars of the Navy. They're, mm-hmm. for a ship, they are very nimble. Okay. But keep in mind that nimble means I can turn them in under half a mile. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. they tend to be fast to accelerate. They're a lot of fun if you're driving a ship. Okay. But- they're not very big. What's top speed for a frigate? Uh, about 30 knots. Okay. So if that's doing really well. What's that, like 35, 40 mile, miles an hour? Yeah, somewhere about there. Yeah. And okay. The seas got to be great. 
Mm-hmm. Right. You need you the, know, the conditions. Not a lot of weather. Yeah. Not behind an aircraft carrier, which is where I spent a lot of time on a frigate. Mm-hmm. Behind the aircraft carrier trying to pick up Top Gun pilots out of the water should something terrible go happen. Oh, uh, well. Was that thing a thing that actually you had to do? Yeah, it's called plane guard. Yeah. Okay. So generally use small, fast ships to do it, mm-hmm. frigates or destroyers. So you park behind an aircraft carrier a little less than a mile away okay. at about their 190, so off their left and rear. Mm-hmm. Right. And you spend all day having airplanes dump gas on you before they land. Oh, jeez. And you're there in case something untoward happened and mm-hmm. one of the flying things ends up in the water. Yeah, because you can get there and an aircraft carrier can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. an aircraft They're carrier not is not going to. It doesn't stop for two miles. So you're not, they're in another county by the time they can turn around. Right. How long is a typical aircraft carry as it is? I um, mean, you could measure Nimitz that. class in. run about a thousand feet. Okay. So right. think Empire State Building on its side. Yeah, right. Doing about 30 knots, <sighs> making so its own wind. There's, yeah, there's a bit of inertia there. Yeah. It's not uh, stopping anytime soon. Yeah, right. So at some point you went from there to... um Shooting things in outer space. Yeah. How, how'd that happen? So while I was in graduate school, the Navy uh, generously decided that I needed an applied math degree. So they sent me to Monterey, the postgraduate school, to get a degree in operations research, which is the mix between applied math, industrial engineering, primarily used for optimization theory. But while I was getting the degree, I decided that I would actually like to see my wife and children. Mm. Novel idea. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's a thing. And being at sea a lot and for a career requires a lot of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, I admire all of my friends and classmates who did it, mm-hmm. but I figured out early that is not what I want to do. It does seem like it's not exactly going into space, but you're leaving ground. You are. Yeah, you you're, are. You're you are gone. Leaving everything. Yeah. And you know, when you're at sea, the the mission is everything. Mm. Sleep is a afterthought usually, and you know yeah. you are constantly working and constantly busy, and it is a all-consuming lifestyle. Mm. But it wasn't going to be mine. Yeah, and so I applied for a transfer to cryptology, which now is called in the Navy information warfare. Okay, and started down that track. And while I was working as a computer programmer for a bunch of mathematicians. They can write algorithms, but they can't write programs. Um, <laughs> uh, while I was doing that, I got a, a phone call that says, hey, do you want to go volunteer for this thing? We can't tell you what it is, but you want to go volunteer for it? And I said, sure. Let me, let me go to the meeting at least. Right. Okay. So I uh, went to the meeting and then you know, 12 years later, it turns out that the meeting was about doing things that put satellites in space. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty incredible career change. And there was nothing like working in aerospace with, with vehicles and the space launch and everything about it is an order of magnitude different than anything I had done before. Mm. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine. And yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah. But, it's, uh, it's such a, the industry is so crazy because there are always problems. Mm-hmm. You know, there are always challenges and it got to the point where, the joke was that it didn't matter what the problem was, but if you quickly applied $25 million to the problem, you could make <laughs> it go away. Uh-huh. All right. Yeah. And there was a spate where in the middle of my career where a contractor, they would come to us with the week's challenge, mm-hmm. but they had a plan. The plan was if you paid $25 million right now, 
we could fix this in time. <laughs> After the fourth or fifth time, we began to wonder, is it really a $25 million problem or just all problems are solved with $25 million? Right. And then I thought about my own life and figured out, you know what? All my problems would just about be solved with a quick application <laughs> of $25 million. Or maybe a few. So you're not on the, the rocketry team. You're, you're managing the actual satellite. Yeah, the, the, the rocketry team, you know, those guys are great. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a challenging problem. It's literally rocket science. It is literally rocket science. Yeah. And it has uh, catastrophic bad day points. Yes. But yeah. in the end, it's chemistry and physics. Mm-hmm. You put right. enough things that go boom together, something is going to leave the ground. Yeah, right. I was on the, the actual, what they call the vehicle team, okay. which was otherwise known as the catch team. So once it's in orbit, it was our job and the, the team's job to figure out did it survive mm-hmm. and is it doing what we think it's going to do mm-hmm. and then getting the satellite ready for the people who would eventually operate it. So are you waiting kind of cinematically in a room just for a ping from the satellite yeah, it, after the launch? Yeah, it's crazy. It's, you know, it's that whole, you know, Apollo 13 mission control thing where okay. you're all sitting in a room around the big computer monitor. Everyone's mm-hmm. sitting around the table and, you know, you're waiting for this, Telemetry signal mm-hmm. from a far off station. It could be Hawaii or California or okay. somewhere overseas that receives the signal. And then it's like telling you the satellite, yes, it did its thing and, and left the upper stage or no, it didn't leave the upper stage. And mm. then you're going to have a bad day. Yeah. Did you have any bad days? Everyone has bad days. Sometimes, <laughs> okay. But- <laughs> Uh, but you had good days too. So. There were a lot of good days. Yeah, yeah, right. But there were some bad days. Yeah, sure. And then once it's up, satellites basically go right to work, or is um, there you have to no, run through some a, checklists or something? Yeah. Or? Satellites, you know, it's like a specialized Ferrari or Formula One team. You know, mm-hmm. it, it takes a massive effort to make sure that they're ready to do yeah. what you tell them to do. You know, the cartoons are always like, and the, the movies are like, well, I'm just going to put a satellite in orbit. And then, you know, oh, right, yeah. the solar panels come out and, you know, it immediately gets yeah. doing what it's doing right away. And they take like three seconds to deploy. Yeah, just, and, yeah. yeah it's not like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those situations where each of those things is highly scripted. Mm-hmm. The, the software that's written for these things is, is planned and, and tested and executed months in advance. And then each command that is sent to the satellite is verified and checked mm-hmm. before it's sent. And then, you know, the receipt of message as well as the execution of the step is then checked against telemetry and then verified right. before you proceed to the next step. It's a very time consuming process, but when you're talking about a significant investment by the country in both time and mm-hmm. treasure, yeah, the last thing you want to do is, is make a mistake. Right. Sure. Yeah, no need to cut any corners there. Yeah, Yeah. because the repair time for those kind of things is next to infinity. Mm -hmm. How do you test these things without actually sending them to space? Two ways. Okay. Most of satellite programs have what they call engineering samples. Okay. So satellites are built kind of like a modern PC. There's individual components that are built by multiple manufacturers, and they're integrated to one bus. Mm-hmm. usually developed by the prime contractor. Okay. And so you put all the Lego pieces together and then you have a satellite. Mm-hmm. So as the Lego pieces are being built, there's what's called engineering 
verification boxes or pieces that are not flight worthy, but are the design of the satellite. All right. And our program chose to hook all of those things together to pretend to be a satellite, Mm. um, which actually worked out really well because we could send signals to that and get responses to it that would behave or we hoped would behave as much like a satellite as we could and reduced a lot of risk on the vehicle Mm. and uh, gave us a lot of testing ability that we wouldn't have had otherwise because testing on a expensive satellite is not encouraged all the time. Yeah. All right. But are you actually like putting pieces into vacuum somehow or oh, yeah. There's bombarding a, it with um, contract gamma rays? Or I worked with had a ginormous box. Mm-hmm. I had several of them. There's both a vacuum chamber. There was an RF chamber. So you're shooting all sorts of radio waves at it to make sure there's no adverse effect. And then there's the absence of radio waves. So, mm. you know, kind of a RF Tesla. Mm you know, Faraday cage thing that you do to make sure that the satellite can respond as you expect. But you, there's also a ginormous thing that looks like a paint shaker Mm. that you put this thing on for a little while. And it's the most stressful Mm. time. I think in anyone's life, bolting this really expensive satellite Uh down to essentially a giant shaker table (laughs) and hoping nothing comes loose. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you're testing millions of dollars of equipment right there, I assume. Yeah. 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 It's real expensive to make Uh a mistake there. Wow. I only know of one case where they actually dropped one of the satellites. Mm. That was another contractor. Uh, It was a weather satellite. Mm -hmm. They were in a bad way. They were liable, I assume, in terms of the contract? Uh, Contracts are interesting things. (laughs) Yes, they are. Which brings us to, after all this, you went to law school. I did go to law school. Uh-huh. After I retired from the Navy, the ethics policies of the government required that I go do something else for two years. I couldn't work in the industry with the people I'd worked with before. Sure. It's prudent. Yeah. Because otherwise you, you have industry capture if government officials, and that's not a good thing. Mm. So this was kind of a, a cooling off period, if nothing else. Right. And I had been a legal officer on the ship, first ship I was on, and I'd already always be interested in the law, but just didn't have an opportunity to go mm. before retirement. And so since I had a vacation anyway, mm. I thought, let's go to law school. Yeah. You're thinking, let's just take it easy and do some kind yeah. of fun for yeah. a little well, while. Why not? Yeah. My wife was an already an attorney, so I'd kind of lived it vicariously through her, but mm. it's different when it's you. Mm. So I assume um, GI Bill kicks in here too? It did so a little, little that help, yeah. but student loans are still mm. still a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Law school is an expensive proposition anywhere. Mm. And despite what Hollywood says, the, the salaries coming out are not what not they would sure. have you believe. Right. So you went to law school, and and that's got to be an intense experience, just as Naval Academy, and then, you know, driving frigates and launching satellites are all pretty intense activities. You just walked right into another one. Yeah, it's the things you don't think about. Mm -hmm. You know, they're always intense once you're done with them, because you're like, oh, wow, I can't believe I actually did that. Uh What was I thinking? Mm -hmm. Law school was the same way. Wow, done with that. What was I thinking? You know, the, the Hollywood tropes are true. You know, the whole think like a lawyer thing, Mm. that is a sad fundamental aspect Mm -hmm. of law school. So your brain's permanently damaged. Yeah, you are, you are brain damaged out of law school (laughs) because you never look at anything the same again. Oh yeah. Uh, Amusement park rides, broken sidewalks. It's like, who's liable? 
Uh-huh. Who would pay if someone sued? Uh, right. It changes. It warps how you think about everything. Mm. Right. Because uh, often attorneys are there because the worst case scenario is, or something close to it has happened. Yeah. Like someone tripped, somebody committed a crime, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Like, you can become jaded fast mm-hmm. as a lawyer because you, mm-hmm. in many areas of the law, you see the worst of everything, whether mm-hmm. it's criminal law, either prosecution or on the defendant's side, you know, either being accused of committing a crime, whether you're the prosecutor trying to prove someone committed a crime or the defendant trying to show that it wasn't me, Mm. you know, both of those areas are challenging and they're difficult. Mm. It's a tough aspect of the law and even transactional attorneys, you know, where they're used most often are the, unfortunately, the darker side of human interaction. You know, Mm. there's lawsuits for someone being injured, divorce Mm. cases, child custody cases. Very rarely does someone call a lawyer for a happy occasion. Yeah, that's right. I imagine lawyers who do adoptions, that's probably pretty happy generally. Yeah. I imagine they run into things that are kind of ugly from time to time. I'm sure, but But the outcome is happy. The outcome should be happy. Yeah. But that's a rare example. Yeah, sure. Yeah, last lawyer we we had to use was an estate lawyer. So, yeah, I mean, you know, important things had to be done, but nobody wanted to be doing those things. Yeah. No one, no one calls a lawyer because they have money to burn and mm-hmm. they want to call a friend. Right. <laughs> I think our lawyer, and this is probably standard build by the quarter hour, maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah. It would not be an unusual practice for a personal lawyer for, trust and estates and that kind of thing to bill on a quarter hour, yeah. you know, for paperwork and things like that. You can, many lawyers will flat fee oh, okay. a lesson that many lawyers need to learn and learn quickly is that the law is a business. Yeah. Right. And so unless you are in a public service field, you got to eat too. Yeah. And the problem is you have to convince people that you're worth paying so you mm-hmm. can eat. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it can be challenging to be a, be a lawyer in practice. So after law school, did you jump right into bar exam, become an attorney right away? Or? You have to take the bar exam if you're an attorney. I say that you don't have to. Mm-hmm. You could go to law school, right. graduate, get a JD, and never take the bar exam. Sure. You just can't practice law anywhere without mm-hmm. it. Except the law school professors, surprisingly enough. Huh. You don't have to be lawyers. Wow. Well, sure. Craziness. But yeah, you have to plan Mm -hmm. taking the bar exam. Is there um, other jobs you can take after law school before you've gone through taking the bar exam? I was an intern with our our prosecutor's office. Oh, okay. But you were under the supervision of all the attorneys that you work for. But you can't really, you can't be a lawyer or really work in the law with a JD without being licensed. Mm Mm-hmm. You can be supervised while you're waiting to take the bar exam. Right. And many firms will hire a prospective graduate based on them passing the bar Mm. because there's a lag. The first bar exam of the year is usually in February. Okay. So if you're a December graduate, you would take the February exam. And if you're a a May, June graduate, you take the July exam. Mm -hmm. And it's only given twice a year. Okay. And can't get a license without it. Yeah, right. Sure. So how'd you end up at Omni? This experience is maybe not as intense as law school. And, you know, not that, you know, we're busy, we work hard, but, you know, and software releases, you know, that can be kind of intense, but 
it's not bar exam attempts, but right, a few yeah. things are. Yes. And you would not want to live your life long term like you were prepping for the bar exam. Right. I have the benefit of only having to take and pass one. My wife has taken two. Mm, it's two different states. Yeah, so she's yeah, licensed yeah. in three states, but she had mm. to take it in two different ones. And right. I not want to do that. I'm avoiding doing that. Let's say that. <laughs> but I was studying for the bar. I was using on the outliner to take my notes mm-hmm. because I had shifted to outliner after the first year of law school because uh, another long time Mac app folded on me. Circus ponies, notebooks oh, sure, went away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had been trying out both outliner and notebook um, for a while. And living in Denver at the time, living right? That's Denver. where you went to school. And yeah. then Circus Ponies made their announcement that they were no longer. And Outliner became my full-time uh, note-taking app. Mm-hmm. But I was writing up my notes for a criminal procedure and the update notice popped and said, hey, update your Outliner. Mm. I think I had to buy a version upgrade or, or something or change my license or find my license or something because it was, it was acting squirrely on my computer. But it took me to Omni's webpage. Okay. And at the, the top of the banner was hey, would you like to come work for Omni? Hmm. And I thought in the middle of prepping for the bar exam, I'd like to work anywhere. <laughs> but Omni seems like a lot of fun. Because uh-huh. well, uh, make a great app. Yeah, Because yeah, I'm using the heck out of their app. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had been in uh, government computer space for a while, building government apps and government mm-hmm. doing government programming tasks. And it's like, I don't really know anything about commercial applications right, sure. or, or commercial work. And it's like, well, Let's see what they're looking for. And they were looking for a software tester and they wanted one of new things about program management. I have a certification from the defense acquisition university and software testing. And right. I know something about program management. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. So, uh, launch, put satellites up into space. Yeah. And- so I thought, why not apply? Mm-hmm. And one of the requirements is, you know, at the time of the application was uh, not use Microsoft Word and have your own D&D books. Um, I, I, could write up, I could write up a resume and not put it in Word. And I did have my own D&D books. Oh, geez. So uh, I applied and then mm. uh, got called in for an interview. And then... Meanwhile, uh, you're still studying still for the bar Still studying like crazy for the yeah, bar exam. Right. And this is just a background kind of thing happening. Yeah. Unbeknownst to me at the time, the wheels were turning at Omni about mm. setting up interviews and things like that. But I was below the waterline and contracts and tort law and getting ready for the bar exam <laughs> and got called in for an interview and interviewed. And then three days before I sat for the exam and in Tacoma, um, got the call that said, Hey, come work for Omni. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, well, I could not take the exam. Oh, just got a job. Got a job. Yeah. What do I need this bar exam thing for? Yeah. Yeah. That would be crazy. I took the bar exam. (laughs) I am licensed in Washington. You passed the bar exam. Passed the bar exam. Are licensed Um, Washington State Attorney. But surprisingly, even though I had a job, I remember because the results came out in September. Mm -hmm. I just remember the the morning before I was coming into work, and just my hand was shaking, just checking the results uh-huh. solely because I didn't want to have to study for it again. <laughs> uh, right. But you were, you were ready to do it. Uh, I would have done it. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't have wanted to do it, no, but I would have no. done it. Oh man. And then, uh, yeah, started work at Omni September 1st that year, mm-hmm. 2015. 2015. Okay. So it's uh, almost four years. Almost four years. Yeah. Well, congratulations on passing the bar exam. Yeah. Oh, I'm done. I try not to think <laughs> about that. So do you do any lawyering a uh, little on the side here? A little on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's the, 
the big time lawyer. I'm the, I would be the, the small town, the, you know, the foghorn leghorn, the Barney, the Barney Fife of the lawyers. Barney Fife. All right. Got any cats? I do have cats. Yeah. I have, I have Cleocatra. Cleocatra. Of course. We've shown Cleo on our page before. And She's then, been featured. Uh, we have Declan who is in, well, now Fergus. He started out as Declan. He was Declan on the Perfectly uh, blog, good name. Yeah. But he wouldn't answer to Declan. And so we had to come up with a, a different one. And so we came up with Fergus. And he answers to that. Because, and he does answer to Fergus. Because that's his name. Well, that and he's a ginger. <laughs> Cats are enough, but maybe you have hobbies too. You're one of those I, knitters. You're a rock climber. No, We've got am, uh, tiki drinkers. Oh, I do go to Mark's tiki parties. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah and, it's a good party. Yeah. Um, they tell me to dress for the job you want. So I wear a lot of Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> there you um, go. Because beach, bum, beach bum. bum is my ultimate uh, goal. Yeah. Uh, but I... I am an avid EVE Online player. And what is EVE Online? Internet spaceships. That's just it's perfect. It's a sandbox space game and known to be the, the most cutthroat and mm. unforgiving of internet MMOs. Sounds like fun. Well, I play Cutting with- Cutting throats and not forgiving people. No, actually, yeah. I play with a bunch of pacifists. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We kind of chart a different path. Yeah. So you put cutting throats in your dropped tasks. Yeah, it's right. definitely in the, in the yeah. drop task areas. We, uh, we rescue people who get trapped into wormholes and, uh, mm. and help get them out. Yeah. See, serving your nation. Yep. Mm. Well, thanks, Jim. How can people find you on the web? You can find me on Twitter at USNA92. Which is U.S. Navy 92. United States Naval Academy, class of 92. Nice. I'd also like to thank our intrepid producer, Mark Bosco. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. And especially, I want to thank you for listening. Thank you. Music. Music.